Turning to Luke chapter 15, that's where we're going to be this morning. A little over a month ago, I did something that I have never done before and I may never do again. I preached a Mother's Day sermon. Not a sermon on Mother's Day, but a, a sermon that was directed to, toward the fact that it was Mother's Day. I was having a conversation this morning with, with, with my parents as we had breakfast about the, the discomfort I have sometimes when the church celebrates secular holidays. And Mother's Day is a secular holiday. I love our mothers. I love my mother. But Mother's Day and Father's Day are secular holidays. They are not in the rhythm of the church calendar. And yet, just as I said over a month ago, Scripture has a lot to tell us about mothers and fathers. Scripture has a lot to tell us about family. And over the course of the next six months, we're going to be spending some time sort of dipping in and out of what Scripture has to say about family. So a little over a month ago, I preached a Mother's Day sermon, and it seems only right and fair that today I preach a Father's Day sermon. Now let me tell you, when this originally planned, I was planning on actually being a father that had held my child by today. Somebody is not cooperating. Does not bode well for my future with this child. Unfortunately, he or she is going to be an awful lot like me. I am so sorry, Audrey, you do not deserve what is coming to you. The great joy is, is that I have my father here this morning, and I have my father-in-law here this morning, and not only is my daddy here this morning, it is his birthday But you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day like Mother's Day can be tricky, and we talked about that. There are a lot of folks who don't have good relationships with their fathers. I'm lucky. I have a great relationship with my daddy. Okay, when I was like 16, maybe it was a little rocky. But once I turned 22 and he suddenly got smart again, it was great. You know, the Mother's Day, Father's Day, it, it can bring up a past or a present hurt. It can, it can bring up a, a present absence. But here's the thing. Regardless of, of how wonderful your birth father is or isn't, the truth is, is that we have a Heavenly Father who extravagantly loves He's a father that we can approach at any time to ask for wisdom and advice. James tells us that. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. I don't know about you, but I have reached that stage in my life where if I have a question, the first person I call, is 90% of the time daddy. The other 10% of the time it's mom. We, 
We have, a, we have a heavenly Father who shows no favoritism. Romans 10 tells us that. For Scripture says, everyone who believes on Him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have a heavenly Father who repeatedly throughout Scripture has said that He will never leave or abandon His children. You know, we talk a lot about what it means to be a disciple. That as a disciple, we are called to follow Jesus. We are called to grow in Christ-likeness. We are called to become more and more like God. And God's holiness. And so, maybe as fathers, we should look and see not only what is said about what fatherhood is in the Bible but also at how the Heavenly Father is described. And take that as our model of fatherhood. And that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking, like I said, Luke chapter 15. This is a story that you know well. This is a story that you know well. And so, as, we, as I often do when we look at something that we think we know and we think we've heard, I'm going to ask you to please try and hear this passage of Scripture for the first time. Kick off everything you think you know and try and listen to these words for the first time. I know that's tough, but let's try and do that together. So we are in Luke chapter 15. We're starting with verse 11. Will you stand with me? as we read God's word together. He, Jesus, also said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. 
Now his son, older son was in the field as he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. Obviously, they weren't Baptists. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you. And I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brothers of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. may be seated. So right here, we have this parable, this story from Jesus that's describing to us what the Heavenly Father is like. A parable is... is is a story that seeks to use analogy and metaphor to point us to a larger truth. It's a teaching story. Jesus is trying to teach the the people present, trying to teach us something about something. Now, this falls into a series of parables about things that are lost. The very first parable in chapter 15 is the parable of the lost sheep. The sheep is lost. The shepherd realizes the sheep is lost. The shepherd leaves the flock to go find the lost sheep. The next parable, the one immediately prior to this parable of the lost son, is the parable of of the woman who has lost a silver coin. She has lost a silver coin and she turns her house upside down looking for this lost silver coin. If Jesus was around in 2021, it would probably be the parable of the lost car keys. We've all done that, right? Or, or in our house, the parable of the lost Apple TV remote. It is almost always somehow under the couch cushions. So so in this series of stories, we see that God seeks out those that are lost. It's clear here that that God, that Jesus is telling these stories about God seeking out those who are lost. If we go back to the second verse of chapter 15, we see this. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so it's this series of parables that Jesus tells to the Pharisees and the scribes who are complaining that he's sitting around eating with a bunch of sinners. Oh, hey, guess what? So are the Pharisees and scribes. About this God who seeks out the lost. But see, one of the wonderful things about parables is that they can be so 
so rich in meaning. They were described to me one time, a parable, as being like a house with different doors and windows. And, and sometimes you can enter these, the parable through different doors and windows. So we could, we could preach a whole series of sermons over, over a series of weeks telling the parable and looking at this parable from the point of view of the lost son, the point of view of the father, the point of view of the, the son who stayed behind, the point of view of the servants, the point of view of the mother who isn't even mentioned. How do all of them see, and what do they see, and what's happening? And and we get here, we get this image, we have this overall image, this overall instruction that God seeks out the lost, but in the process, Jesus is also lifting up what it means for God to be a father, and what heavenly, godly fatherhood looks like. You know, we often call this story this, the story of the prodigal son. But prodigal is not a word that a lot of us use regularly anymore. And so sometimes we think prodigal means lost. The story of the lost son. In fact, in, in, in my Bible, the, the little header that I have before this story actually says, doesn't say the parable of the prodigal son, it says the parable of the lost son. Prodigal is a word that doesn't mean wayward or lost, but it means recklessly spendthrift. The son is prodigal because he takes his inheritance, goes into a far country, and spends it on stuff that he shouldn't be spending it on. There's a little book that Tim Keller wrote a number of years ago called The Prodigal God. And he uses this story. And he says, look, we've talked about the son. And that the son is recklessly spendthrift. But what does it mean to consider that the father is being prodigal? See, see, in God, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself Paul tells us that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in this story, we see a father that represents the heavenly father that Jesus knows so well, and he's showing us this God of great expenditure. This God who is nothing if not prodigal toward us, his children. Because the son doesn't deserve the father to come out and put a ring on his finger and a robe around his around his shoulders and just kill the fattened calf, does he? Nothing in the son's behavior justifies the father's response. Quite the opposite. But beyond Scripture and beyond the cross and beyond the resurrection, God is showing us his presence and love for us in every little detail of our day. This morning, the sun came up. This this evening, at some point, the moon will be hung in the sky and it will set. And over the course of the day, the moon will pull the tide in and 
and push the tide, pull, pull the tide out and push the tide back in. And, and the north star is still going to point us north. And, and the bees are going to do the things that bees do and pollinate the flowers and the crops so that we can eat. God's grace for us is demonstrated every day in the ways that His creation supports and sustains and gives us life. You know, God does not always give us the things that we want. I want this kid to have been here a week and a half ago. God does not always give us what He wants. But He always gives us the very thing that we need most. Himself. The Father is always present. And so Jesus is using this parable and the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin to reveal the heart of our Heavenly Father toward us, His children. In both parables, the the parable of the, the, the lost sheep and the parable of the lost son, the shepherd and the father are fully aware of and care about the welfare of their charges. Whether those charges are present or absent, obedient or disobedient, walking the line or way outside the line. In this image of a father longing for the return of his son, we see a a father who cares more about his children than he does about his wealth or his reputation. Imagine a small town. You're a dad. And one of your sons comes to you and says, give me half of my estate, and you give it to him, and then he goes to, I don't know, Atlantic City, Las Vegas, South Carolina, and blows all of the money on dissolute living. You can get yourself into some trouble down in Myrtle Beach, can't you? Now that son comes back. And the father throws open his arms and welcomes him home. What do the people in town have to say? Well, did you hear what his son did when he was down at Myrtle Beach? Did you hear all of the things that he got up to? What I heard was, and yet we have a father who doesn't care about his wealth, doesn't care about his reputation. He simply rejoices that his son has returned. You know, there's this interesting thing. Verse 20. So he, the younger son, got up and went to his father. But while the son was a long way off, his father saw him. This was a dad who was sitting Every day, looking for the return of his son. Because he saw him a long way off. 
He watches daily for the return of his younger son. And when he sees him, he doesn't wait for him to get to the front porch. He goes and meets him as quick as he can. With his arms wide. And then there's the older son. And notice in the older son, the older son doesn't come in the house. Just as the father pursued the younger son, the father pursues the older. And he goes out to him. He doesn't send a servant and say, come inside if you want to talk to me. He goes out and he finds the older son where he is in his anger and in his hurt and in his frustration and in his temper tantrum. And he pleads with him to come home. To to sit at the Father's table and to claim his inheritance. What do we not see from this image of a heavenly Father? We do not see condemnation, we do not see judgment. We do not see a father who tells either of his sons what to do. There's no desire on the part of the father to exert power over his sons. We don't have A father who tells the younger son, how dare you insult me by wishing me dead to take your inheritance early. You're not going to do that. You're going to do what I tell you to and you're going to stay here. We don't have a father who, on the return of the second son, says, I told you so. If you had just done what I told you to, everything would be fine. We don't have a father who when the older son refuses to come inside, castigates and browbeats, he goes outside, he meets him, and Scripture tells us pleads with him. He doesn't go out and say, you are embarrassing me. Now you come inside and you act like you're happy that your brother's home. No judgment. No condemnation. No desire to exert power over his sons. We have a father who simply wants the best for his sons. A father who has done his job. Now here's the thing. Here's the way that we know that the father has done his job. Because what happens? The younger son, what does he do? He comes to his senses. Guess where you get your senses? You get your senses from the lessons that your parents instill in you. He comes to his senses because his daddy had spent his childhood teaching him what it meant to be a good man. And there's this thing, isn't there, guys, I can't speak to women. I've never been one. 
But there's this thing that we do, right? When we're 18, 19, 20 years old, where we think we know best and we're going to go off and we're going to do it on our own and we don't have to listen to anybody and we're going to make some really boneheaded choices. Now, if that was not your experience, blessings. That was my experience. I'm not going to name any names, but I know it was some of y'all's experience because you've told me. But there's that moment when all of those lessons that daddy gave you click. What am I doing? One morning, you wake up, you find yourself living in an apartment with a woman that you're not married to, and you think, how did I end up here? Mama and daddy raised me better than this. How did I end up here? I know better than this. And you come to your senses. And then if you're really lucky, mom and daddy come and help bail you out. So what does fatherhood look like? Looking at this, at this story that Jesus tells to show us the love of the Heavenly Father, what does fatherhood look like? How do we take this example of the prodigal father, of the prodigal God, and apply it to fatherhood in the here and the now? During the Mother's Day message, I, I referenced the movie Hook. Talked about how in, in Hook, Hook at one point is described by one of Peter's kids as being a mean old man who doesn't have a mommy. But one of the, the problems in that film, one of the things that we see in that film is the all-too-common example of a father who has spent so much time working to provide for his family that he's lost sight of his family altogether. Peter's family is well off financially, but they are starving for their father's presence and attention. And it causes conflict in the family. In fact, Captain Hook is able to use Peter's, Peter's uh, uh, separation from his son to turn his son Jack against him. Jack is going to join the pirates. In Ephesians 5 and 6, we have this passage in which Paul writes about a Christian household, what a Christian household looks like. You're probably familiar with these passages from Ephesians 5 and 6. We had the passage from Ephesians 5 read at our wedding. But it's important to note that whole passage starts with verse 21, in which Paul, Paul writes this, Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And then Paul shows us what that looks like in a Christian household. In a household that's ordered by following Jesus. But, but it starts submitting to one another. That's the, the key. 
And as we go through, and Paul talks about husbands and, and wives and what that submission to one another looks like. And then in, in chapter 6, Paul writes this. In chapter 6, verse 4, Paul writes, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. That's what fatherly submission looks like. Don't stir up anger in your children. But bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. God revealed Himself through Christ and show us what it looks like to walk with the Lord. And in the same way, earthly fathers should build up and equip their children to face a world beyond their front door by being present in their lives and by showing them how to walk as children of the light. While husbands and fathers are called to be the spiritual head of the household, we must remember that that looks like Christ and not the world. This isn't a power over situation. This isn't about a father telling his children what to do. This isn't about a, a husband lording over his wife. No, this is about coming to the family with a servant's heart. This is about a heart that's willing to die just as Christ died. To die to self to die to selfish wants and needs. Maybe you are a father and, and you've struggled to be present in your family's life. Let me challenge you that today, start the process of being present. If something in your past requires forgiveness and reconciliation in order to begin building a happy, healthy relationship with your children, and I want to be really clear, I'm talking about children and I'm talking about grown children, be the first to take that issue before the Lord. Don't let your pride get in the way. Be the first to take that step. And if, if counseling or discipleship is needed, perhaps, brothers, it's time to seek out godly elders or trained professionals to walk with you down the road to recovery and making amends. There is evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence that shows us the importance of fathers. Kids who grow up with dads who are present, statistically, don't go to jail, don't end up with substance abuse issues, don't end up abandoning their own families. There was just a report that I was reading this morning 
that was done for young women. And how young women who had present fathers in their life, fathers who were present, were so much less likely to grow up to be young women with depression and anxiety and other sorts of body image and self-worth issues. Fathers are so important. Now maybe you're a mother. Maybe you're, you're, you're a wife and you're praying that your husband will fully step into his role as a husband and a father. Pray that. Pray that he will seek the Lord together with you and you make decisions as a team for your family's future. Don't be the one who makes all of the decisions. Do it together. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3 that as members of the body of Christ, it is our privilege and responsibility to support the men in our lives as fathers and as brothers in Christ. We talked last month on Mother's Day about the disproportionately high number of single mothers that we have in our immediate area. Did you know that we also have a disproportionately high number of single fathers? We don't talk about single fathers. But we have a disproportionately high number of single fathers, men in our community who are raising their kids by themselves. Just as we asked last month, and I, I challenge you to ask, what are we doing? What are you doing to come alongside women who are raising their children by themselves? I'm going to ask you, what are you doing to come alongside young men who are raising their kids by themselves? What support are you offering? What mentorship are you offering? I look through this room and I see some really awesome dads. Because I know your kids. What are you doing to come alongside young single fathers to help them, to mentor them, to support them? Because we love, as a culture, to talk about the young single moms and how much help they need. But young single dads need the help too. You know, there's a lot of junk that comes in from our culture about fatherhood and what it looks like. There are sort of three big cultural models of fatherhood that you pop culture, that you see in the popular culture, none of which are biblical. So the first is the, the, the tyrant father, right? We all, know, we all know this stereotype. We all know this mode. The tyrant father who lords it over, who tells everybody what to do, who's super strict, and we're told either that that's the way to do it, that that's the way to keep your kids in line, or it's lifted up as this is an example of how awful my father was and I don't want to have anything to do with him anymore. So that's one model that's lifted up. That, not biblical. We haven't seen that in this story, in this parable, in this teaching from Jesus. The second is the bumbling idiot dad. 
This is the sitcom dad, right? The dad who can't get anything together. The dad who doesn't know how to use the washing machine. The dad who, the dad who trips over himself. The dad who comes home from work like Dick Van Dyke and the first thing he does when he comes in the house is trip over the ottoman. The bumbling idiot dad. Totally incompetent. He's the butt of jokes even amongst his own family. Watch just about any popular sitcom. That's the dad that's in the sitcom. And then there's the absent dad. Right? The dad that, that, that has bought into the lie that dads aren't needed, that mom can do it all, that dads just get in the way. This is sort of reinforced by that bumbling idiot dad who, who can't do anything right, can't do anything on his own. Mom's got to be there to keep everything together. And so this dad buys into that lie that he's not needed. And if I'm not needed, why be there? And so he is just in the background. He's not a negative influence. He's not a positive influence. He's a, he's a decent add-on. He's an accessory. But he's not needed. These are the models that are held up of fatherhood in our culture. Take some time to really examine what TV shows and movies are showing us of fatherhood. And there are some, some wonderful counterexamples to this. But look up. These are the three models of fatherhood that are lifted up in our culture. Not a single one of them is a reflection of biblical fatherhood. Because the, the vision of fatherhood that we see in this parable and that we see through all of Scripture is this. A loving father who is totally competent but doesn't seek to compel and calls his children to the truth. A father that's quick to forgive and quicker to rejoice and celebrate. A father that's willing to slaughter the fattened calf and honor the return of a wayward father. The father that's willing to go out and plead with his older son to come and be part of the family. That is the model of fatherhood that's lifted up in this parable and that's lifted up in Scripture. Man, I want to be very clear. I don't think that men can do it on their own. I know that I can't. I recognize that I sort of fall into the bumbling idiot stereotype on occasion. A couple of years ago, Audrey left on Mother's Day to surprise her mother. She was not out of town 30 minutes and I was already bleeding. I need adult supervision. But here's the thing. I'm lucky. Because I have an amazing model of what a father is in my own father. And then I won the lottery twice. Because I got an amazing model of what it was to be a father in my father-in-law. And I'm lucky. I hit the jackpot twice. I actually hit the jackpot four times. Because our moms are pretty cool too. but I know I'm going to have to ask for help. Many men need to ask for help, and maybe you do too. You know, asking for help can make us feel weak and vulnerable, but the truth is it takes courage to ask for help. 
It takes courage to, to say, I don't know how to do this. So if a man approaches you and asks you for prayer or asks you for help or accountability or advice, don't turn him away. Don't think that he's weak. Because when we become known for our care and support for those in our midst, we become a safe place where others can come and share their needs and ask for help. We become a place where we are modeling what it is to be a community that, that looks to the horizon for the return of those who are lost and who, when they, we see them coming from a long way off, run and with open arms welcome them home and don't cast aspersions on where they are been, but Throw the robe around their shoulders, put a ring on their finger, and rejoice. For the son that was lost has been found. The son that was dead has come back alive. One way or another, within 48 hours, I'm going to be a dad. And my prayer every day is that I would be a prodigal father. Because I have a prodigal father. I have a living prodigal father who has loved me beyond all reason even when I did really stupid stuff. And I have a prodigal heavenly father that has loved me beyond all reason even when I've done really stupid stuff. Father's Day is a day that can be tough for a lot of people. It can be tough for fathers who are estranged from their children. It can be tough for children who are estranged from their fathers. But today... I hope every one of you will rest in knowing that you have a father who loves you beyond all reason, who would do anything for you, and in fact has done everything for you. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 307, Just As I Am. 307, Just As I Am. returned to the Father, and the Father welcomed him home just as he was. If you need to return home, if you need to know the embrace of the Father, today is a good day. 307, just as I am.